Who would have thought that sitting in a bar in Tokyo, you might sip a gin that reminded you why you fell in love with the spirit in the first place? I'm Susan Schwartz, your drinking companion, and this is Lush Life Podcast. Every week, we are inspired to live life one cocktail at a time. Christian Jensen dreamt about gins gone by until that fateful sip. And upon returning to London, he decided he needed to create a gin just for himself. That gin is Jensen's. And thank goodness he decided to share it with others. Today, he talks us through the journey he took to create that special gin he was dreaming about. But before we begin, you can always watch this episode on YouTube, plus all the other Lush Life episodes, as well as a whole lot more. Just head to youtube.com slash at Lush Life Manual. That's youtube.com slash at Lush Life Manual. Now, let's join Christian. It's great to have you here with me. And I can't wait to hear the story of Jensen Gin, having been there in your distillery, which is fabulous. Thank you. So why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself, where you grew up and how you started to get into gin? And I probably will interrupt you along the way to unpack some stuff. So I am Danish, grew up in Denmark, left Denmark when I was early 20s and came to London, thought I was going to travel the world, but ended up staying and basing myself in London, but traveling back and forth to lots of bits of the world. So why did you move to London? Was it a work thing or a, a study thing? I mean, I've kind of always wanted to travel. So London was, I thought, a very simple transition from Denmark, given that it's very close by, but England is quite different from Denmark. Everybody who's been in both places will know, but it was, I wanted to go and see the world. I wanted to travel and London was a good first step, but... That was 1987, so it's kind of like been longer than I was in Denmark. So why was there this need or want to travel? I mean, Denmark is a small country and there's a big world out there, lots of things to see and explore, go and find out what's happening elsewhere and see how people live and do things in other parts of the world. All right, so after London, where did you decide to go? I mean, so I pretty much stayed in London the whole time, but I... Went to Tokyo in the late eighties after a couple of years in London for six months, came back to Denmark, worked in Denmark, uh, then came back to London and then back to Tokyo, back to London. And what kind of work were you doing? I started engineering back in Denmark and then I took a sabbatical in 86, studied not that hard for the three years I studied, but had a good time, learned, learned enough. And I got a job as a software developer. Back in 1986, worked in Denmark for a clothing company for a year. Then when my sabbatical was up, I thought, why don't I go to London, find a job over there working in software. So I came to London, continued that path, basically. Never went back to study again. So what drew you to Tokyo? Was it just a work thing at the first time? Well, the first time I met a Japanese girl in London. So I went to Tokyo, as many people do. Oh, love. So I was there for six months in culture shock and enjoying it a lot, but spending all of my savings that I had saved over the last couple of years after not being a student anymore and decided to go back to Denmark and start working again and look at whether I should think about studying, but I ended up getting a job pretty, pretty quickly and got into finance at that time. So finance tech was a thing that started back then. 
And so now we can go right into how you fell in love with gin. So gin, gin and I have a long history. Being Danish, you, you're kind of expected to, to drink and like beer, but I never really got into that. I don't know how I didn't fit into that national model. So when I started going out as a teenager back in Denmark, gin was my go-to kind of thing, gin and tonic. Usually that was my alternative to beer and always was happy with gin and tonic and, and gin clearly over the years after that went from gin and tonic to, to cocktails in general, but gin has always been a, like a big feature in what I was imbibing when it was alcohol that I was consuming. Before you started making your own, which we of course will get into, was there a specific style of gin that you liked or was it just a gin and tonic? You kind of think about it and you don't think about it. When I was in Denmark back in the previous century, until after I left, I would have said that Gordon was the gin I was drinking. And it's, it's a London dry gin. It's a clean, crisp. I mean, the reason I like Gordon's was because it was a nice flavor. It was not rough. It was easy to drink. It was less than it worked well in the gin and tonic. It worked with, well with other things. It was nice mixes with other things. So just a nice, nice gin. There was more gins back then than there was by the time I got involved with, with gin. And, and what happened with gin is, as, as happens with lots of things, things were in cycles. Um, there used to be a lot of gin distilleries everywhere and lots of small distilleries doing things in a, what we would today call craft gin way or much more distributed. And at some point, the consolidation of businesses takes over and takes, take control of that. The big companies buy up smaller companies so they can sell more and they can own those brands as well. And by the time we get to about 2000, there probably was less than 10 gins available generally. And gin was just not a thing. People weren't drinking gin, people were drinking vodka and all of the gin companies had been bought up by, by the big companies and, and the big companies were not making gin in the same way as, as they had been made by lots of companies prior to that. So when you, when you get accountants to run things and it, it's, it's all money driven, then it becomes a different kind of product than it is if it's made by people who do it for love. Gordon specifically used to be made when I was a kid in, in London, they had some beautiful gin distilleries in Hislington. Right. You can find pictures of it and that got bought up by one of the big companies, the production moved to Scotland and that's where it is today. And I'm sure they're making good business, but. In terms of the gin, I'm sure that it was, maybe my memory is wrong, but I'm sure it was better back in the 80s. That's how they did it then. I don't know. You can always find a bottle at one of the vintage bars and, and see if that's actually true. And that's kind of what happened to me in Tokyo. So I was All working right. in Tokyo in 2000 to 2002 for two years. And Tokyo is a lovely place. It's full of small and quirky businesses. It's, it's much more, much more broken up in, into like different things than it is here. The big brands don't seem to be able to get the same, well, I don't know what it is, but one of, one of the bars I went into one night, horse making castle comments about gin not being as good as it used to be. And, and the bartender agreed with me and from under the counter, he fished out gin from the, from the sixties, Gordon's from the sixties and Gordon's from 2000, which was on the counter and let me taste the difference. And we all agreed that it was. A different product, not just because of the age, but there, there was, it was just a different product. It was made differently. Do you remember, I know it's a long time ago, but do you remember what it was 
about the difference or what was the difference between the two? I mean, like, you know, if they, one was smoother and more well-balanced and nicer and easier. Like, it was a well-balanced and soft palette. It was a classic London drive to me. It was just uh-huh. nice. Whereas the one that was in, in 2000 was more, more artificial, more rough and, and not as smooth. It felt, it felt more like an industrial product versus, I mean, it's a little bit like comparing a craft beer to, yeah. to Budweiser. What's the difference? Uh, so, and then I'm sure that at some point, if you could compare Budweiser now to Budweiser, what it was when in the beginning, it would be a different thing as well. So. Of course, of course. Now, after that fateful drink, did like your whole world explode and you say, oh my God? It wasn't just one drink. It was uh, many drinks. Uh, so for uh, two years, I was working and I spent a lot of evenings and happy company in, in that bar drinking, not just Gordon's, but all times for all gin that he was very good at finding and enjoying the experience of, of, of good quality old gin that was made with more TLC than, than the modern products. So. I was going to say that was one big bottle if you were drinking that for two years, but the ones that he found after that bottle was finished, were they Japanese gins or they were just his collection of things that he had from the years before? It was, it was stuff that he either bought on the internet, which wasn't that much, or on the weekends, go out into the mountains and find some shops that, I mean, alcohol doesn't go off, so right. a lot of shops will just keep things in the back. So he was very good at finding all bottles of gin from all kinds of companies. They're mainly English, but American, Italian, Japanese, all, all over the world. People have been making gin everywhere, but right. it was, it was not just one gin. It was a lot of it, like England has. An advantage in gin, I think, historically. <laughs> and uh, the old gin bottles from, from the UK were always nice. But it was not just the UK, it was all kinds of products. Yeah, I see you kind of, it's so romantic. Like in my head, I just have this movie of you, this romantic movie of you going into this bar and this journey of gins over two years and how exciting it must have been for both of you, the bartender and you, to explore that. It was great. It was, it was lovely. He's, he's a great bartender, and I was not the only one enjoying these old gins, but a small group of us, was, it was nice. It was fun and interesting to do that. And, and in itself, was nice enough. But then, of course, when I left Tokyo, as things happened, one thing stopped, got started there. So he, he gave me an old bottle of gin as a leaving present when I left Tokyo because he, I've been there so much and enjoyed so many old gins that he basically thought I should take it to London and make some nice gin because he was finding it more difficult to find these old bottles. So he was, I think he was saying it in jest and, and not really serious about it, but I took the bottle with me back to London and got made redundant. So I had freedom, time on my hands and decided to take a sabbatical. I'd never really taken a sabbatical before. Always been either working or trying to find work. So the mental state of like taking a break was nice. And I had stored lots of air miles up and it was free and jolly. So one of the times I came back to London from one of my travels around the world, I looked at this bottle of gin and thought it would be fun to find out how you make gin and started looking into that. And in 2003, when this took place, there was only like the research that I did. I wanted to make the gin in London because I think London has a strong connection to gin. So my uh, making inquiries to how many distilleries there were in London. There was two gin distillers in London at that time. There was, uh, there was a company called Beefeeder, which still exists. And then there was another company called Tim's Distillers, which 
I spoke to and because I didn't think Beefeater would be very much interested in entertaining my silliness, wanting to make it in. But, uh, Tim Cicillus, the, the guy there, a guy called Charles Maxwell was, uh, curious. He also thought that I was completely mad. He, his first reaction to us, to me, wanting to make gin was like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> no, one, no one drinks gin anymore. Uh, you should make vodka instead. That's what people drink. My comeback on that was that I wasn't really interested in what people were drinking. This was, I wanted to make a gin for myself. I had a little bit of money saved and I wanted to find out if I could make gin. And the intention was to make gin for me and me alone. I love it. So I went down and visited him down in Clapham and saw the distillery and talked to him. And he kind of got convinced that it would be okay to make this for me. We talked about what the cost would be, the time and how to do it. And then we started out on this journey to create a gin for, for me. Now, did you take the bottle that you had with you as an example of what the kind of gin that you wanted to make? Or had you tried his gins? I took the bottle with me and, and he knew the distiller that had made that bottle oh. it was an English gin and he had been at his funeral some years before. No way. And uh, the company didn't exist anymore. Been bought up by the same company that bought up Gordon's end production done like the product had disappeared out of the market and was some like not really ever come back. So he said, why don't you just hold on to that bottle until we have something that, that we have done. We make a product that you like, and then we can do a comparison because we're not going to be gaining much from drinking that bottle and like playing around with it. So his reaction to me was instead of looking at that bottle and, and trying to work it out, then tell me what it is you like about gin, what we, sh what we should put in the gin to make it nice. It's like, I had no idea what went into gin. I was going to ask, did you know your like Angelica root or your Angelica to your Oris root to your juniper at all? Did you know any of that? Nothing. I mean, like I knew juniper wasn't gin, but okay. apart from that, whatever was on the sides of bottles, but it was not everything I'd ever really thought much about. I mean, it's, it's like going to like gallery and then seeing paintings on museum, seeing paintings and you like, I like that painting. I like, I don't like that painting. You can't. Nice. That's, that's the level of knowledge I had about gin. So like, I knew which gins I liked and, and, and that was as much as I needed to know as a consumer. I didn't need to know what ingredients were in there and how they were made and anything else. As long as the product was good, I was happy. So when he started asking me what to put in there, I was like, I mean, my answer was relatively naive and simple. I was like, I'd like anything that could have been made in, like put in tin 200 years ago in London. Uh -huh. It's okay. So don't come up with any new and weird things. I just want a classic London dry gin. That's what I remember liking. We ended up with classic botanicals. So that means that he would be able to drive that so juniper clearly. I wasn't specific about what I wanted other than I wanted it to be a classic London dry gin. So I wanted this taste of gin. I didn't want it to be a vodka. So that gave us what direction there. I said, I like the citrus flavors on, on some of the gins, so like the citrus notes, and, but I, I didn't know what anything else came from in gin at that point. So it was, it was a naive conversation and the bottle of gin I had with me from Tokyo was 43% and he said, look, it's a good idea to, if you like the citrus notes, then we should make it more than a 37 and a half percent, which is the minimum. So why don't we just keep it at 43% as an ABV because that'll allow the citrus notes to be retained longer than it would with a low ABV. So, and he said, if you'd like a well-balanced, you like a classic, you like it smooth, you like it like the citrusy, like, why don't we do this? So in my lab, we'll make three small distillations of something that 
fits what you've told me. And you can come back and try them and then you can say which ones you like, and then we can work out what it is that you like and develop it. So deal. And we talked about the cost of that and he was like, it's no one's really done this before. So when you, when you get to produce it, I assume you'll have me producing it. So we'll just take this as part of getting you to order some stuff at the future. So that sounded good to me. So no luck is bending and then he would be making some gyms to try to pit my taste, which was perfect. So, so when traveling, it came back and called up Charles. It's like, Charles, what do you have? And come down, we have some gin, come taste it. So I went down, tasted the gin. It's like, I like this one. Why do you like this one? Relative to that one. So I started to have to yeah. try to describe which, which it was I liked one versus another of the things that he put in front of me. But he ended up so like, I like this of this one. I like, like this of that one. And at some point he's like, that's good. We know what to do next. So next time you're in London, give us a call and then we can do another session. <laughs> so <laughs> how long did this take? A year. Oh boy. Really? Yeah, really so it took three years. I mean, like it was every three weeks, roughly I was down there tasting three gins and playing around and like evolving the recipe. And at some point we had something that we thought, this is good stuff. This is what I think is good. And then we opened the old bottle and compared it to see if there's things I'd forgotten about all of these old gins I've been drinking in the past. And we made some more adjustments, but at some point I basically had a recipe that this is nice gin. I would be happy to make some of this. Can you please sell me some of this? Did you both come to consensus about that one? It was my gin, so it's me who had to like come to consensus with myself and like agree that this is what I wanted to drink. And uh, I think Charles was happy that he'd made a good gin for me that I liked. So, but in spite of that, he said that I couldn't buy the gin. And why? Because he couldn't sell to an individual. Oh, no way. So the deal was I had to set up a company and get registered with HMRC to be able to place an order with him because otherwise he couldn't, his, his license for production yeah. didn't allow him to sell to individuals. So that was a bit of like, <laughs> what's wrong with this picture? So we have a gin, I like, I can't buy it. So I had to get something like, it's a permission to own duty-free alcohol, which you need to have. So for me to place an order to buy the gin, because she's working with duty-free alcohol, I have to have permission for HMRC to be able to own duty-free goods, even though I don't have my hands on them. Oh boy. So, so how long did that take? It took some months because I had to register a company and then I had to apply for a license to own duty-free goods. And when I did that as part of the process, they sent two people around to interview me for like three, four hours because oh, okay. they must like, it's a big business make selling alcohol for the government. The duty is huge. I mean, do you, do you have any idea how much duty is on alcohol? I mean, a lot. So like the current duty is £28.74 per litre of pure alcohol. So if you think those bottles behind you is 43%, 70 centilitres, that's about, it's about three deciliters, so 0.3 of a litre. So the duty on that is £8.65. I've done the calculation. <laughs> Obviously. But £8.65 is what they take when you move it out of bond okay. as a payment for the duty. And then you pay 20% VAT on top of that. Right, exactly. Right. 20% VAT on the value of the gin. 
that you create in the first place. But it's a huge caution of the price. If you think the cheapest jeans you can get, they probably don't cost, they like cost less than £8.65 in alcohol, but they probably cost six or seven pounds in duty and then BAG on top. So if you can buy a bottle for £10, it's probably cost very little to do to gin. Yeah. Yeah. And the bottle and the packaging and right. making profit anywhere else because there's not much money left from eight pounds or six pounds, seven pounds plus VAT up to the cheapest gins you can get. Yeah. You get what you pay for, right? Yep. That's in the bottle. <laughs> so having set up this company and gotten yeah. the permission and time had gone by, it was time to call Charles and say, Charles, bro, I have my permission to own duty free goods. Can I now please buy some gin? And he said, yes. So that was proof. And of course, my next question was, how little tin can I buy? Because it was for me. So there's two elements. One is the distilling. So like to make a commercial quantity, half a still. So that's going to cost X amount of money. So yes, that sounds okay. And again, that's all duty free. So the costs are not that crazy. And that gin distillate is then used to blend with alcohol and water to make gin, which are then needed to bottle. And he said, look, the time you start a bottling line to make anything, it costs the same whether you make one bottle or a hundred cases. So you might as well buy a hundred cases and cost of doing that is not that much. And the most of the cost is actually going to be taking it out of the bonded warehouse. So. We can make these hundred cases that's going to cost X amount. And then when you take them out of the warehouse, you can come and like collect the case every now and again. And then you don't have to pay all of the duty and tax up front. So that sounded like a good deal to me. So I ordered hundred cases of gin for myself, 12 bottles in each. So 1200 bottles of gin off my new recipe that I had worked with Mr. Maxwell to develop down at Thames Distillery, which was beautiful. Not what I had planned to start with, but it was where I ended up in 2004. So I had a company, I had permission to produce free goods, and I had a team that I had developed and I bought it hundred cases. And when did you decide, okay, I'm not going to drink all of this myself. Maybe I'll share it or sell it to other people. There's actually one thing that happened before that. So I go traveling again and Charles says, like, it's going to be X amount of time before, before we're ready to do stuff. So. A couple of months goes by, and I get this call from Mr. Maxwell saying, so we have distilled it in and we're going to bottle it in three weeks time. What bottles are we putting it in? And this, this was then my prompt to be, what's wrong with you? Like, that's a silly question. You put it in tin bottles. What else would you put it in? And that's not how it works. <laughs> you have to actually pick the bottles. And he said, why don't you come down to the distillery, the company next door sells bottles and they have things to stock and that's the only stuff that you can actually get in time for us to bottle it. So I went down to Blackham to visit Charles, the glass company next door and looked at the bottles and the ones you have behind you are, are the bottles that they haven't stocked, the clear bottles and I like them, they're square. They're like, for me, they're classic gin bottles. Uh, it is actually a, an old Johnny Walker shaped bottle. Oh, yeah, it is. So, sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Johnny Walker used to be making those bottles, uh, but everybody used to make them back then. And I liked the shape. So I thought my job was done. So I was out of my chair on, on my way out. And Mr. Maxwell said, Actually, we also need labels. It's like, come on. 
like, I just wanted some gin watch off the these difficulties. So he said, <laughs> well, for us to bottle it, we have to put a label on it because when a bottle of gin is, is consumed, you need to be able to know basically like what's the name of it, who's producing it. So you can find the person if there's something wrong with it, gin, and it needs to be recalled or anything happens. You need to know the quantity and the ABV of the liquid in there. And that has to be on the bottle. Everything else is optional, but you can't put things that is going to make you smarter or more intelligent or more beautiful. That, that is illegal to put on the label. So he gave me the rules for how to make a label. And then he also gave me a phone number and an email address of a company that could make it in the time because, and he said, don't play around with colors because if you start playing around with colors, it's going to take longer than they can, they can get right. So stick with black and white and then keep it simple. So that was fine. <laughs> so I had my recipe for a label and I went home and called up one of my friends in Copenhagen, who is a graphic designer artist and asked what he was planning to do that evening. He didn't have any plans. So we ended up making a plan for making a label that evening. So the label, the first label we designed pretty much overnight by me and my friend in Denmark and the recipe from Charles. Was it similar to the one that you have now? It was, it was more minimal than that. And, and I mean, if you, if you Google it on the internet, you'll find the old label, look for images of it. The old label didn't have any information about anything. It just had the things that had to be on it. Uh, so very terse and it looked like an IT guy could have printed it on his laptop, like all his computer on his printer at home. It was, it was very basic, very minimal, but it kind of reflected that I care about the liquid, not so much about the packaging. So for me, that, that was fine. He was also the one that insisted I had to put my name on the bottle. I was expecting my, the gin company I said I was called Burmese Gin Limited. It's the part of London I live and therefore I decided that was a good name for it. And it was also a part of London where all of the things that the Puritans in the city didn't allow tended to happen on the south of the river in Bermondsey. Theatres, gin, brewery, all kinds of stuff. But your friend made you call it Jensen's. He made me put Jensen's on it, so I reluctantly did that. It was a good idea. He did the right thing to insist on that. So we, we had the labels and got the bottles produced. And then I got the call from Charles and he said, you have some gin, do you want to come and get some? So yes. Went down, got a couple of cases, took them home and enjoyed them very much. And in the first couple of cases, I kind of got a little bit worried about myself and hundred cases of gin. So thinking that it would be a bad idea to, to either try to drink them or use them as presents for everybody that I know over the years, because it just didn't seem like it was the right amount of gin for one person to be dealing with. So. I thought maybe I should sell some of this gin. As a software developer, you don't have a lot of experience in selling gin. So I started carrying bottles of gin around in my jacket. I had a nice jacket that has two pockets on the inside. <laughs> if you have a normal jacket and there's pockets at the bottom and the outside, on the inside, there are some inside pockets that could fit a bottle of gin each. It was like one of those jackets where people like have 400 watches that they open up like. Yes, the watches. I had two bottles of gin in my jacket. I'd go into shops and restaurants and bars and say, how do I make gin? How do you buy gin? Where do you get your gin from? I was trying to find out. So in 2004, when I went into a bar and said, I'm making gin, it's like everybody was like, 
Wow, that's interesting. Why do you do that? No one makes gin anymore. That's very strange. So it was easy to go and like get people interested and hear my story back then. So no, it was nice to have that. But most of them, like they're buying from this company or that company, there was not really any easy ways. And like the shops were curious, but again, like not really interested in buying from a single guy walking around with two bottles of tea in his pockets. And I ended up going to Borough Market, which is local to where I live as well. And uh, in there, I found a shop that sold wine. And in the basement of the wine shop, they had a little alcohol store. And I went to there one Friday night and asked if they wanted to sell gin. I don't think they really wanted to, but I left a bottle for them to try. And next morning, I came back and asked if they tried it. And they hadn't, surprise, surprise. One of the owners was there, David, and a French guy that was the wine person and a journalist was there. So... I asked them to, to taste it and oh, you can see that they were not really that interested in tasting gin, but managed to get the bottle open and managed to get them convinced to try the gin. And the owner who was clearly the key person was sitting on a chair and when he got this little small plastic cup with the gin, closed his eyes and sniffed at it and then he tasted it and kept his eyes closed during the whole thing and then 20 seconds later, he opened his eye. This is amazing. This is gin just like I remember from being a kid. It's like proper London gin. They're going to sell it. So, <laughs> one shop in Bar Market, which still exists, called B Dales and B Dale Street. They basically decided to sell my gin on that Saturday morning. And they sold most of the 100 cases, in, like starting in 2004. So, did you did you continue making it then? I mean, again, this was not planned or it's just going with the flow. And it, it was interesting. I mean, like I was working, so or, or traveling or doing stuff. But when I went to the market on Saturdays or go to market, I'd go into the shop and go down to the basement. And my, my fear usually was that they were selling gin to some unsuspecting person. I'm telling all kinds of stories about this mad person making gin. They're still telling all kinds of stories that clearly it was good marketing and good sales, but I had no idea what they were saying. <laughs> I didn't want to get dragged into a story about stuff that I had no idea what the context was. So there was no script for any of this. So it was quite funny, but they, they did a great job. And it was nice because back then there was not that much marketing and not that much social media. So finding out when people were making comments about margin on the internet was relatively straightforward. So I could see that there was a liking for it, that people enjoyed it. So when the hundred cases started running low, it was very tempting to called Charles, ask him to make some more. So we made some more and, uh, kind of snowballed from there. And when did you decide it was time to have your own distillery? And that, that was quite a bit later. So many people over the years kept telling me I should make my own distillery. I mean, it seemed like a good idea. I had a very qualified company making it for me that been very instrumental in making my recipe for me. They did a fine job. It was like, I didn't need to invest anything. I had companies that sold my gin for me. So again, that was relatively straightforward. So it was a nice and easy side business to have a good hobby, a fun kind of project to do. And it gave me good reasons to go to nice bars and talk about, talk about gin, which I clearly I enjoy. Right. Not until, I mean, Sipsmith was a big thing that happened in 2009, like started making gin and then gin was starting to be a thing. Right. And then in. 2012, I can't remember what the event was, but basically my birthday in 2012, I decided to buy still for myself for my birthday party and to 
sign up for these under the railway arches where you've been. Yeah. So it was in 2012 that that happened around June when my birthday is and not really looked back since then. Yeah. And if you think of that, you know, that's 11 years ago, gin still was just starting to become what this craze that it is now. It was really. It was, you know, it was still early. But, it was still those early days. Yeah. But at that point I'd been making gin for seven, eight years already. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of weird. But the distillery was a fun thing as well. I mean, when I, when I started thinking I should do it, I started doing some research, what wedge buy still. I talked to Charles as well and found out what they, so they have some stills from a company called John Doe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are in English, like they used to be the Rolls Royce of gin stills and there's still gin stills out there being there that were made from them in the past. And of course I wanted to have something that was as similar to what they were using because it impacts the product when you move from one production area to another production area. So getting a still, which was relatively a copy of what they had, right. uh, was, was desirable. Plus it was a, like, it was a classic London still, which fitted in with me trying to make gin in London, which I still believe is the right place to make gin, at least for me, maybe not for everybody, but. The romantic in me wants to know, was it hard to kind of break up with Charles? I mean, yes, it was. And, and. But it was not acrimonious or difficult in, in, a, in any way like that. It was like, oh, don't think I should start my own distillery. Sounds like a good idea. <laughs> and they helped and they, like, he was aware that I was doing it. He gave me the name of the company up there still and explained about it. Uh-huh. I found that the company still existed. It was down to one person at that time, but, but he was willing to make a still for me. So we met and talked about getting a still made that was just very similar to the ones that they have in terms of the cellars, but not quite the same, but same size and roughly the same. And they were made in, like in the UK, most of the metal work in Kent, but bits and pieces from other companies made it up. So when we got the still finally in like a year and a bit later, we had all of the permissions and the licenses and what have you that we needed. Uh, the, the deal was to go to Thames Distillers to make gin with them to see how they were doing it. So we, we learned how to distill from them, uh-huh. uh, to like, like to distill gin from them. And we also, all of the ingredients, the first time we distilled came from them. So we basically got all of the juniper, coriander, and rice root, and angelica, and so on and so forth from them. Then we got the alcohol from them. I think we even got the water just make okay. sure that there was no variation in anything. So whatever went in the still, when we tried to distill the first time, we wanted to be as few variables from the prior production. So, and then clearly they're all helping us. They're all part of that. So yes, it was, it was difficult, but it was also easy in another way. And now there are two bottles behind me. Now mm-hmm. one is your London dry and one is the old Tom. So I was wondering, when did you decide to start creating the Old Tom? The Old Tom happened much before my distillery. It, it happened back in 2007, 2008. Oh, super and early. Gosh. So, yeah, I think it was the second old, new Old Tom, but not by a long time. Basically, uh, one of my friends in the area in the industry was saying, look, vodka sales are falling and continuing to fall and all of the big producers are looking for uh, an ornate spirit to start making genius genius what they're going to start doing and you kind of had the market to yourself and you knew an interesting gin but that's not going to continue so given that your main market is is good cocktail bartenders and in, in nice bars and hotels 
why don't you make the other tin that everybody knows from the classic recipes, which is an old Tom gin. And then he told me that it's easy to make old Tom gin. You just take your gin and put sugar in it and and you have an old Tom gin. So it was like the London dry, the the dry element was what he thought was going to make it an old Tom gin. And being the nerd that I am, I decided to do a bit of research and find out how old Tom gin used to be made. And found out that actually the old Tom relates to the other part of, of the London Dry. It was the recipe that changed in 1830 when clean alcohol distillation started being possible that made London tin the London thing. Because the company that started making distillers for clean alcohol distillation was based in London. And they started selling to distilleries in London that made tin. And what the gin distillers found was that with clean alcohol, you could make a different style of tin that was lighter and more elegant in its profile, less botanicals, less cost of botanicals, of course, but also like a different style of tin because it was starting with, not with a rough unaged spirit that really was not nice, but a nice clean alcohol. So the recipe changed from lots of botanicals to overpower the flavor of the alcohol to something that was using the same botanicals, but much more easy to, to drink and consume in, in nice drinks and cocktails. And of course this happened around the time when the cocktails bar started happening. So the American bars and what have you was a thing that started happening around just after London dry gin started happening. Right. It was also the time when the empire was growing and there was a need to get people to take their, their tonics. It was the anti-malarial drug right, that we have, which, and it's, it's unpleasant. I mean, like if, if you ever try the, the tonic syrups that are available now, you'll understand why. I mean, they're full of sugar, but they're still very bitter because yeah. we need a really bitter compound. And they found that one of the ways to get people to take their tonic was to put gin in it. Right, of course. And soda. Uh-huh. And soda and then a bit of the tonic was a way of getting people to take their anti-malarial drugs out of the colonies. So gin transformed around that time. But the transformation was really a recipe change. So the old Tom, from a distiller's point of view back then, was a change in recipe. The dry was really not at that time done in the distilleries. It was done in the mixed part of the chain, which was the pops, the tin palaces, where they're making, they're making more money by diluting the tin they're buying from the distilleries, basically. And to make it less obvious that they're doing that, they did three things to the tin. That is very well documented. One of them was to put sugar in it because sugar is, apart from people being addicted to it quite easily, just as they can be with alcohol, it enhances flavors. It gives it more flavor. So if you put water in something and put sugar in, it's not as obvious that you put the water in, what if, like the water in and diluted it. They also, to give it more alcohol burn with less alcohol, they used the cayenne pepper. And because it was stored in transport in barrels at that time, that didn't really cause any problems with the color, probably helped the color be more similar to what it was before dilution. And then the last thing they did to give it more of the junica flavor was to use turpentine oil. Right. Yes. I knew that. Yeah. So there are three things. I mean, very well documented, lots of different sources yeah, of that talks about that, which is surprising in some ways and not so surprising in other ways. And they're, they're like those instrument makers trying to sell instruments to the pubs to like make them consistent in their dilution and then doctoring the product afterwards. But what happened with all Tom Tin is there's 
London Dragons started becoming more popular, did the old Tomkin disappeared out of existence over time? I think there was still old Tom being made up in the 60s, maybe 70s, but there was very much smaller quantities than there was London Dragon. London Dragon basically took over completely. And the thing that happened that confuses the sugar or the dry is that when the parliament in the UK decided back in the 1860s that gin should be sold in bottles and not in barrels anymore, then preparing of of the bottles became the part of a new job in the distilleries that they had to model things. And of course, they had two recipes, the old Tom recipe and the London recipe. And then they had the products as they were selling them without sugar. And then the products that were diluted and sweetened that had been sold in the, in the pubs. So they ended up making four, four products. They ended up making the two recipes and the sweetened and unsweetened version. And the only one that survived is the London dry. So the old Tom gin I have is, is an old Tom dry, if you want the two elements of the name. So the old Tom relates to London and the dry relates to the dry, but from a legal point of view, there's a lot of regulations about what a London dry gin is, and there's no regulations about what an old Tom gin is. So mines with days enough old Tom gin is based on my research and finding a distiller's notebook from the 1840s and finding a old recipe that I could use. Uh, whereas other people can do whatever they want with, with what they call old Tom gin. So I try to be historically accurate with my product rather than creating some some more interesting product for sales marketing purposes. Now, you said you found it in a book. Were you looking for a recipe and just happened upon one for an old Tom gin that you decided to use? I I was trying to find out how old Tom gin was made, and there was not a lot of information available. But being an IT guy and being good at Googling and researching and finding things on the internet, I found books, I found documentation about gin production from back in the time, but I also found that one of the companies that had been bought by one of the big companies had given all of the family's records to the London archive in the area of London they lived in. So I thought I should go and have a look at what they'd given to the local archives. It was a bit of a nightmare because no one had ever heard of it. So there was another goose chase around town trying to find out where these records actually were. Managed to locate them in the end. And, and there was, amongst the gems there, a distiller's notebook where he was making notes of what he was producing day by day. So took pictures of lots of stuff from there, including the recipe that is the old Tom recipe. I feel like it was meant to be. In some ways it was, but it was also, I mean, it was a lot of work finding it, but... It was also interesting creating, creating an old Tom gin that is, I mean, there's like, if, if it had been exactly the same flavor and taste as, as the dry gin, it would have been pointless. But the main thing historically is old Tom gin would have been made with dirty alcohol. I did try that. It's not worth experimenting with, trust me. You want the clean alcohol. So the, the recipe is the difference. That's the only difference between the two. I mean, I, technically I could probably get away with calling the old Tom Gin and London Dry Gin as well because it follows all of the rules and regulations for one boy London Dry Gin, potentially with the exception of the main flavor having to be juniper, but that's always a very subjective judgment. Of course. Now that you have this in bottles, 
Have you seen your mm-hmm. friend, the bartender in Tokyo, and taken him a few of the bottles? I've seen him many times, yes, and he likes the gin a lot, so he's very happy with it. And at some point, I'm sure I'll find an import in Japan that's going to be able to sell it to him on a regular basis. Oh, that's so bad. I thought you were going to say it's his house gin now. And I mean, he, he buys it and he gets it. So the Japanese market is difficult to get into. It's a relatively closed area to sell out on Japan. So I'll get there. I was just about to do it before COVID and then it became quite difficult to go back to Japan. So hopefully one day it will be his house pour when it can be sold in Japan. When it can be sold in Japan, it'll definitely be his house pour. There's no doubt about that. So what is the future of Jensen's Gin? Do you feel that you need to produce any more? Are you just happy what you're doing and you're going to leave it the way it is and just have the two, or are you going to explore and do some more stuff? The future for Jensen's gin is, is many different things. I mean, I'm very happy with the two gins that I've been making for a while. So they'll definitely continue. Every now and again, I think I should make some other gins as well. Some other distilled gins. Maybe strength one is one obvious one. Maybe another flavor is another one that would be interesting. So I have a couple of ideas and it'll probably happen at some point, but I'm quite slow in developing new things. So that might take some time. The other thing that happened to me over the years is when I was doing research on gin and gin history, noticed that pretty much all the distilleries used to make four other gins on top of what the gins that they distilled are. So they pretty much all used to make slow gin and damson gin and lemon gin and orange gin. And having had access to responsible quantities of gin and borough market meant that I started buying fruits and vegetables and flavors in Borough Market and putting in gin to make lots of different infusions. And most of them are quite interesting and nice, but they've mainly been for private consumption. And then slowly we've been making a little bit of it that we sell in the distillery, but it's not really super commercial. The problem I have with infusion is, is, is sorting the botanicals, the flavors. So whether it's apples or pears or rhubarbs or oranges or lemons, I want to know where they come from. I want to know the history of them and I want to have a steady supply of them so that I can make a quality product that's as consistent as can be when you're, when you're dealing with a natural ingredient, which, which we will do. And finding that has been difficult. So we are working with somebody who has a good supply of quality fruits and vegetables that we will be using to make infusions. So I can see infusions being part of what the future is. And I think that's the main thing. We've been doing cocktails as well, but cocktails happened. We started making pre-mixed cocktails probably eight, nine years ago. And we started making them because I enjoy cocktails, but when I'm at home, I don't really want to be making cocktails myself, and I don't always have the ingredients or the patience for it. So one of the people that worked in the distillery was a very, very qualified bartender. So she came up with some recipes for pre-mixed cocktails. We could bottle and I could take home and stick in the fridge and freezer. So that was, again, it's driven by me and my drinking again, (laughs) and it's been working quite well, but we're doing six, seven different pre-mixed cocktails in the distillery, and we're probably going to be selling them slightly more commercially all the time as well. Well, that's a reason to come down to the distillery if you're in London. 
definitely. There's, there's always something special that can get Mr. Deary that we haven't quite gotten around to make fully commercial yet. Well, I can't wait to come down and try some of those. I think I actually had, when I was there, the Damson one, and it was fantastic. Well, you know, I always end with asking for my top tip for the home bartender. I would love to know what you think is the top tip for either making the gin and tonic or making something with gin. People always ask me how they should drink my gin. And there's a couple of things around that. One is, by the time that somebody is drinking my gin, it's no longer my gin. They have bought it and it's their gin. And they should drink it in any way that they enjoy drinking it. So that's the main thing. In terms of what I think about these things I enjoy drinking with the gins, both of them work well in a gin and tonic. But my personal experience with gin and tonic with these two gins is that Tonics are usually a quite strong flavor. So if you want to taste the gin, stick with the old Tom because you don't need as much gin. Unless you really want to get a lot of alcohol, then go with a dry gin. Because I end up using more gin when I use the dry gin because of the, the power of the flavor of tonics being much stronger than it is for most gin. So that's my recommendation around gin and tonics. Martini is the other drink that gin has to work with. So... For a martini with my two gins, you think of the flavors of them. Usually in a martini, you have the gin supporting a vermouth that is usually the main flavor ingredient. Even if there's no vermouth, most of the flavor comes from the vermouth and the gin creates the punch of the, like the alcohol in the martini. The dry gin is a very friendly gin just supports whatever else you throw at it, which is why gin is such a popular cocktail ingredient because it doesn't need to be center of attention. It just works with lots of other things as, as a supporter and provider of alcohol. So with any vermouth, whatever vermouth you like and whatever like dry level of dryness or wetness of the martini, the vermouth you dry gin will be happy to support it. The other gin, the old Tom gin, has more of a personality and wants to be center of attention. So every now and again, it'll disagree and fight with a vermouth. So you're not having this strange experience where two strong flavors disagree and cancel each other out. So it, it becomes disappointing. So you just have to be picking the right vermouth for the old Tom when you make a martini with it. Fabulous. Last but not least, I always ask this. If you could be drinking anything, anywhere right now, what would it be and where would you be? I would probably be drinking a Tom Collins in a small, really good bar in Copenhagen called the Barking Dog. Okay, fantastic. Well, listen, thank you so much for being here with me. And it was great to learn all about Jensen's Gin. I've as I said, I've been to the distillery, as you well know, and it is a jewel. And the gin is just so good. Thank you again. It's been great to hear the whole story. Thank you very much for uh, taking the time to hear the story. And uh, look forward to seeing you in the distillery again. Absolutely. I want to thank Christian for being on the program and for sponsoring the transcription. Our cocktail of the week is a classic that Christian named for himself. What could be better than a Tom Collins on a sunny day? Yep, our cocktail of the week 
the C.J. Collins. Get it? Christian Jensen Collins. <laughs> Add the following ingredients directly to a highball or Collins glass with large chunks of ice. 70 mils of Jensen's Old Tom Gin, 25 mils of freshly squeezed lemon juice, 12.5 mils of simple syrup, and 70 mils of soda water. Then stir gently and garnish with half a lemon wheel and lemon zest. You'll find this recipe, more gin cocktail recipes, and all the cocktails of the week at alushlifemanual.com, where you'll also find some of the ingredients in our shop. Last push to get the book proposal done. This is definitely the hardest thing I have ever done. If you live for Lush Life, then make sure you head out to the bars you love and order a drink. Theme music for Lush Life is by Stephen Shapiro and used with permission, and is also a finalist for the Sonic Bloom Awards given by She Podcasts. And Lush Life is always and will be forever produced by Evo Terra and Simpler Media Productions. Which leaves me to say the wise words of Oscar Wilde, all things in moderation, including moderation, and always drink responsibly. On the next show, we'll be with someone who creates lists, loads and loads of lists. Until that time, bottoms up. <laughs>